Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back to the No One Fights Alone podcast. Uh, today, it's Ben Pearson back in with us. Austin and I have been, man, it is, uh, and I'm in Utah. We're all sitting here together. I see these bright, smiling faces today, and Utah is beautiful right now. Yeah. Man, right. it's so nice. In my creepy basement. <laughs> Dude, this is legit. I like it down here. You've got a sweet setup. You know, it's weird to have your own house to yourself after five years. <laughs> and Ben's uh, got his special order tea, the Pam special chai tea. It is some kind of voodoo concoction. Yeah. I did taste it. It's got cayenne pepper in it and some kind of something sweet. It is crazy. You're a sensitive guy, so I understand why <laughs> it would feel like uh, pretty pretty exotic stuff. I don't feel like that was a compliment. Well, I hear those Midwesterners don't use spices with like food or. In oh, their I'm drink. a cayenne guy. Yeah, okay. yeah I, mm -hmm. I I love the hot stuff. Yeah, yeah. And sure. then we also have Ben's uh, companion for anyone that knows Ben. He goes nowhere without Peppers pepper. With us. Yeah, yeah. Pepper. Uh, our birthday yesterday, Halloween. Ten years old. Ten years old. Ten Happy years birthday, old. Pepper. Yep. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm excited about this morning's podcast. I think we got a good conversation going, or I, I going to happen with uh, kind of talking about what happens when uh, our loved ones come back from going to a treatment facility. Um, I, we know this happens all across uh, the first responderville. Uh, maybe. Uh, you don't even know some of your friends or family members that are coming back. They've subtly left for, you know, 30 or 45 days and they're showing back up. And next thing you know, you have why you were gone. Or maybe you're an intimate loved one uh, that's had a love, you know, partner that has gone to a treatment facility uh, and come back. And this podcast is for you. This podcast and others. Uh, I don't want to isolate that, but this is this is for those folks, right? Well, I mean, there's there's two parts to it, right? Which I, I think I think treatment in general, and when I say treatment, that can be individual therapy, it can be outpatient, it can be, you know, anything sure. of the like. But what the loved one or family member, what their expectation is out of that, right? Yeah, I think it's a great, great conversation. Because we all know there's the old fixed comment that everyone makes, which is, go do your thing, go get fixed, and come home, and we'll figure it out. Yeah, come back right. Yeah. Come back fixed, come back healed. I don't want to deal with it on my end. So we have the honor of having, having Ben back to the table. And Ben, let me let me kind of stage this up. Let's, let's go back a little bit just for our listeners for a frame of reference. If we, I think it's important to know a little bit of context for how treatment has changed or grown maybe as a better uh, better way of putting it. So let's go back and pick your brain a little bit about what treatments look like from, you know, old school to more recent old school to recent to kind of what does it look like today? And let's let's kind of start there. No, it's a great question. Uh, it, it's funny because when we talk about treatment and especially within this, this community, we're, we're typically talking about trauma and about mental health stuff. And that's a relatively new thing. 
Um, if someone had some serious mental health challenges historically, we're really only talking about hospitals. Even old school, we're talking about asylums. Uh, you know, drilling a hole in someone's head was only like 50, 60 years ago. So crazy. That's, uh, that's, that's, there's, there's not a lot of history of people going to a mental health facility and coming back. Usually if you're struggling, you don't come back. Our, our, our culture in general just isn't really good at that. So the majority of what people associate with going away to treatment is almost exclusively mental health disorder, or I'm sorry, uh, substance abuse disorders. So um, going to treatment um, back in the old school, um, the approach was, was pretty different because what we knew about the body, what we knew about the brain, what we knew about even some of these, um, these challenges, our education wasn't terribly deep. It was a very behavioral knowledge that we had in those days. And so when you, when you think about the, the knowledge base, um, we didn't believe that people could change much. We didn't believe that brains could heal much. We didn't know much about how family systems worked. And it was kind of, we discovered that you were broken, something happened to you, and yeah, sure, it's maybe the Freudian, uh, you know, tell me about your mother. There's those kinds of things, but it really wasn't about repairing. It was mostly about how do we isolate, and in some cases, how do we punish this behavior out of someone? So, um, yeah, the odd, the odd reality is that old school probably looked a little bit closer like jail, and we need to make sure this person doesn't come back and, and affect the rest of the system. And for sure, punishment. Um, yeah, because, uh, again, there is still plenty of uh, themes of this in our culture, but the, the idea is kind of um, assessed from a, a spiritual or a religious perspective, which means you have sinned, you have struggled, and there is some kind of uh, deficiency with your will or with your spirit or with something deeper about you. And so um, it was about punishment. And again, they, they, it was a very symptom-reactive culture, and um, most of us and our parents grew up in a culture where, like, you know, knock that shit off. Don't do that anymore. You're, you're bothering her. You're doing this. And we were really good about talking about what's wrong with that behavior. And um, there's not a lot of history in our culture of talking about why is that behavior around? What's the cause of that? And how do we all community-wise make an adjustment to help understand it a little bit better? So it wasn't a very curious model. It was a very punish, react, get away, kind of hide, and some of the shame and stigma is kind of what we have today. Yeah, I, I liked what you said before we got on, which was we shame those behaviors out of somebody, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I experienced that maybe 15 years ago. Um I mean, talk about what that, that process looks like, because I think that that's still a lot of what people expect out of treatment, especially those, uh, I'd say, above the age of 40, mm -hmm. right? They would mm -hmm. expect a, a very, like, sit down, get in your face. Um, there's the old, you know, the Utah, the, the old Haven Odyssey House method of, like, sit you down in a group, and then everyone sits and tells you what's wrong with you mm -hmm. and why you suck. Right. So a true intervention of sorts. So yeah. Here's well, why you're bad. It, it was a powerful intervention because it works. It only works in the short term. Um, but again, keep in mind that, that, that neurologically, we crave connection. As we talk about attachment theory and how we bond in relationships, um, there's a core part of us that is incredibly anxious 
about making sure that we have some support and some validation. And when someone else threatens that, especially if that someone is your family, not to mention, you know, total strangers walk by and they're like, hey, you're kind of a piece of shit. And we're like, yeah, it bounces right off us. It's not that big of a deal because there's, there's really not any risk emotionally there. Um, but it sucks. We have a, a culture that, that says, as long as you do this behavior, I don't know if I can love you. Ironically, in family systems, it's, hey, I love you unconditionally. However, in, in, my, in my interactions with you, here's a couple of things. If you do this, I will sever the relationship. And it's, it's, a, it's a tough one because we don't talk about it much. So, um, yeah, shame has been incredibly popular because it is terrifying because the undertone of that is a deep level of rejection, a deep level of disconnection. And so when someone says, you must change or else, uh, they may not use that language, but when that happens, uh, fundamentally, all of us come to this real simple kind of fork in the road. And the fork in the road says, okay, I will be honest about my problems or I will hide those problems. And so if you're making me make a choice, I will lie to you. I will even lie to me. And I'm going to go underground just to make sure that I get your affection and your attention and your validation and those kinds of things. And so... Uh, on the outside of that, people who don't realize that they've used shame and guilt to punish and criticize, they think it worked. They're like, wow, what a great intervention. All I, have to, all I have to do is just flex this muscle, and this person just complies. And doesn't compliance feel nice? And then our ego gets stroked, and we think we've solved something, and then we you know, skip down the road a little bit further, thinking there's no real secondary consequences to that. But there's some serious consequences because all of us have been shamed. All of us know what it's like. And all of us knows what it's like to be in a situation of, I'll tell you what you want to hear, even though it's fundamentally dishonest, but I don't trust you anymore. And you're not safe. And I'm not going to connect with you the same way. I, you just explain everyone's childhood in one way or another, right? Like, sure. No one's know, safe. It's yeah. going to happen to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's because I'm just thinking about memories of like, I mean, even little things, right? Where you're a child and you're like, your parents are telling you, don't, don't do that. Right. And you're like, but why? But outwardly, you're like, okay. And yeah. then, then you go and sneak out at 2 a.m. instead and go do it. Well, I know. And I know we're speaking, um, a little bit more to the the family's friends that that exterior circle of the person who's having a hard time in life and for whatever you know behavior they're exhibiting but to advocate for that person as well this this isn't you know they're not off the hook but this the same in the same token look we we kind of get that side already. So we've spoken to that. So I, I don't want to ignore the fact that, hey, we, we speak to that side a lot. So we're speaking to this family side. So if we kind of circle back to the basis of we're talking old school, we're, we're kind of walk, kind of keep walking us forward in this, in this uh, gradual kind of how we got to where we are today. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a social worker by uh, education. And so I think more about systems. And the the challenge is that there was, there's not a ton of education for families about trauma or about substance abuse or any of that kind of stuff. And so the, the kind of the, the, the message that gets sent is um, don't trigger someone that has a problem, right? 
and it, and it it's an interesting message because the the idea is well if you upset someone or bother someone then it becomes your responsibility for how they react and and that is deep at the heart of much uh, a lot of the codependent messages in our culture of if i ask you about your depression does that mean that i made you suicidal if i if i point to the consequences of your drinking does that mean that I'm the reason why you're drinking. Like there's a lot of those messages that are out there. That if you say something to me, you are now the cause of my behavior. And that is a deep myth that's done a ton of damage, but, it's, but it doesn't leave families with a lot of options. So what it looks like is everyone, going back to my earlier point, becomes pretty dishonest about what's actually going on for them because it's not safe to be open and honest and, 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 and vulnerable in those ways. And so families go back, and I'd say this is incredibly human, that people either get stuck in these realms of avoiding uh, any of the real kind of honest conversations about fears, concerns, consequences, all that kind of stuff, or they get into a very controlling, micromanaging, hovering, uh, helicoptering sort of thing. Um, their, their goal for both of them is to have some kind of safety, is to have some kind of peace. Because we do, in our culture, pride ourselves in, in maintaining peace because we think that means harmony. We think that means happiness, uh, even though we might get there very dishonestly sometimes. So the, the challenge of it is that families end up thinking, I don't know what to do, so we're going to either look really good on the outside you know, dress up, play nice, make sure the neighbors are all really impressed with us so no one asks the hard questions of what's happening behind the scenes. Or, um, yeah, there's this really management, uh, reactive, sometimes very angry and punishing sort of interactions. So it's, it's tough because neither of, neither of them accomplish much. It is about just getting through today. So when we see families come to this treatment process, uh, the client themselves, who has been in the middle of all sorts of shit, of mental health, maybe substance abuse, they've been trying to survive and just make it through the next little bit. But what they don't realize is that families have also been on survival mode for quite some time. And so they are either having to placate, play nice, avoid, pretend, do all of these things just to kind of maintain the peace. But everyone comes in pretty exhausted. And so the expectations uh, are pretty high because everyone is just so depleted, so discouraged, angry, resentful. And that's not their goal. And they really do intend to be supportive and positive. But the reality is that their, their, their internal system is pretty shot. And there's, there's not a lot left juice in there. I think even with the intentionality of wanting to be the supportive, loving, caring reinforcer to propagate a, a good recovery is the desire. But, but I think the, I think what's happening, it wouldn't, cause what resonated with me is that survival mode of, um, I mean, it's kind of happening unbeknownst to them. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. It is it, just, hap it's just going to happen. Even though they, I want to be, this support person, I'm so wounded that their body makeup is for, because of a variety of reasons that 
we've gone into in previous episodes, it's just taken over and saying, I'm done. I, my goose is cooked here. I'm, I'm well, what, what, do you, what kind of skill set are you drawing from? I mean, keep in mind, we're all making our best guess of how to manage relationships by our parents' role modeling, right? So if we've seen a parent get really good at being accountable or really good at being vulnerable, most of us didn't have a parent that sat us down and said, okay, when you get depressed, this is how you should take it. And when someone else surrounds you has a bad day, this is why you shouldn't take it personally. Like for the most part, we don't have a lot of those kind of skills or conversations in our culture. And so uh, not only are we in survival mode, but we just don't have a, again, a pool of, of new ideas to really draw from. So we end up going to what we've seen in the past and that may or may not be helpful. Well, I think there's two things also, which is a lot of people don't realize they're in survival mode just because they've been doing it for 10 years this mm-hmm. way. So it's actually just the norm, mm-hmm. right. right? And then when somebody goes to treatment and steps away out of their life, first off, the loved one is normally really excited to We're begin the with. the best they can. Yeah. yeah. But to begin with, they're like, can't believe they finally did this. This is what's needed, right? Yep. And then you get maybe like a five to seven day period of this loved one being stoked for that. Right. But then when they're away and they're separated, their mindset switches back to like, oh, this is what life is actually like without them here. Mm. And this is really nice. And then they become angry Mm -hmm. and resentful. And all of the things that have built up over 15, 20 years of marriage suddenly comes out. And it's now time to pay the piper. The No One Fights Alone podcast is excited to announce the launch of our new merchandise line. Now you can show your support for our mission by purchasing one of our hats, shirts, or hoodies. Our merchandise not only represents our brand and message, but also supports a great cause. A portion of all proceeds will go towards helping individuals and families affected by mental health. Wearing our merchandise not only spreads awareness for our podcast, but also serves as a reminder that no one has to fight alone. Join us in showing your support and spreading the message of hope and community by purchasing one of our No One Fights Alone items today from our website, nofapodcast.com, nofapodcast.com. I think we've painted a pretty good picture here. So what are some of the, what are some of the coming home themes let's let's go down this let's go down this road a little bit and just start what what should we expect what what happens what can we how can we take care of ourselves and our loved ones what is let's dive into that a little bit yeah and i'll 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 jump back to finish up austin's point for a second because it does answer your question i i think that education starts day one for us as someone comes into the program being in their own survival mode they just haven't had the bandwidth just the capacity to really understand what's been happening around them, right? I, I've talked to guys even very recently, and they're saying, like, I'm on the bathroom floor just struggling to, to make it out of the house. Um, whether that's from a substance piece or from just the anxiety and other other stuff that related to his, uh, his PTSD, he, he just didn't understand what else it was like for his kid or for his spouse, and um, that education starts pretty early in the program. Um, most of us really don't want to see ourselves as someone who's hurting other people, especially in this line of work, right? We're here to be the solution, whether it's tip of the spear, solving stuff, you know, kicking ass and taking names, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's a piece of it, but none of us 
in general ever want to be a burden. And so when it when you finally get into a spot where like I'm okay, I've got medical care, I've got support, I've got peers, I've got all that stuff, the dust settles, then you realize, yipes, I might be the source of trauma in my house. And that that is incredibly unsettling. It's the truth and it's really good medicine. But that's a hard day. And so helping them understand that like, hey, they've they've had all sorts of reactions. And when you say, hey, I'm gonna go out to the garage. They all know what that means. Whether you're all you're gonna go get drunk, the spouse is thinking, "Okay, I'm a single parent again. Uh, I don't have a dad. I don't have a mom. They're gone. They're doing whatever, and whatever is going on in my life, they don't have a fucking clue." And that's a pretty devastating moment when when your parent or your loved one just chooses to be somewhere else and disconnects. So, so as we talk about expectations and and solution talk. The reality is we have to burst that bubble. And that's that's not fun because people don't think that's what happens in treatment. I'm supposed to be, you know, enjoying myself and and getting some support and doing the healing. But people think somehow that, you know, scrubbing out the wound <laughs> and really getting after some of these core issues, this poison that's still in you, we forget about that part. So bursting that bubble scrubbing that wound and saying like, yeah, there's some real stuff here that you've avoided for a long time, but that is closer to the problem than you think it is. So we have to start there in, in the, in the process. Does that make any sense? Oh, a hundred percent. This is, this is, uh, what resonates with me is, is the hard work that goes into getting healthy at a treatment facility. Mm -hmm. It's not a vacation. It's not walking the beach and enjoying a Mai Tai. Right. Uh, it is well. It is hard work. Well, there are places that are like that, though. So once That's again, fair. that can be the uh, passages Malibu days when they would say, hey, you know, you you need a vacation. You, you were an addict, now you're not, kind of a thing, mm -hmm. right? Like that idea. Everyone's seen that commercial, and that idea of some people's envision of treatment is like, you know, they go exercise every day, they go out and do all these fun activities, and um, they don't, they don't probably because of lack of education, actually, too, as well. They don't understand what actually goes on on a day-to-day -day basis. And when their loved one calls them and says, man, I feel amazing. I had, you know, a great breakfast. Uh, we went out and went for a hike and did a, a walk and talk or, you know, whatever that may yeah. be. Well, like, I think by default, they're not bringing up that hard work on purpose because it's so painful. And right. unpacking that on a quick cell phone call is not... Well, they've got 10 years of not talking about anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talking about something vulnerable is not easy. It's going to take a while to kind of ramp up into that. And I, and I do want to point out, I, I, yeah, I should have, I should have mentioned there are places that are vacations, mm -hmm. but you know, Chateau and, and some of the, the, our partner friends across the United States, they're hard work. They're, they're digging in and scrubbing the poison out of that wound. I like that metaphor that, which is that, that resonates deep. I assume that's how that's that's relevant in how people decide where they're going to go to treatment. They they might hear about the work and they're like, yeah, that's uh, I'm a that's a pass. No thanks. Hard pass. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something that's a little bit simpler, and it, it is gotta be comforting on some level when someone says, no no no, we're just gonna help you work on alcohol. And they're like, okay, sweet, you're not gonna ask me all these weird questions. My mom, my my wife's not gonna have to write any letter. I'm not gonna really have to talk about the other parts of the system that is metastasized, the let's, I'm glad we're just going to keep this about making sure um, 
I'm alcohol-free for the X amount of days and hours. Yeah, but also at the same time, working in missions now for the last eight years or so, a majority of somebody who has called and said, oh, this is my second go or my third or fourth or fifth, a majority of the time, if they got excited and went to those kind of places, unfortunately, they're looking for help in the future at some point. You know, like that is a really tough reality that like when they did not address the hard stuff or they just addressed, if they have trauma and they just addressed the alcohol, you see them looking for help at some point in the future. I Yeah, I, I think that's super common. And, and going back to Brad's question of how do we kind of move forward and figure out some more solution stuff. Um, yeah, I, I am still personally a, a little surprised by how many programs are incredibly business as usual. We have had some really cool advancements in what we've learned about the brain and about our understanding about trauma is radically different than where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. So we've got old school models that are adding sushi and massages and there's going to be a therapy session here and there. And that's great. And I'm sure that helps marketing, <laughs> but the, the, the challenge is that there are some people who re recognize that I've, I've, I've adjusted one aspect of my life and that is a great step forward. And those programs do good, but let's be clear. They do good in their one intention, which is fixing one dimension of your life. So we we've, we've learned a lot about how an internal system works and our external systems. And that is, I, I think, the, the, the upgrade when it comes to um, what, we're, what we can offer to clients and families now is that, hey, there's, if we're talking about serious, sustainable, long-term change, this change is, is going to have to be about lots of things, right? Um, if the old school model is talking about symptom management, the, the new school has to be, in my opinion, it has to be, we have to deal with the symptoms of the symptoms. And, and that's something that is not as obvious. And you do need someone that's outside of your family, outside of your day-to-day -to, -day to help you actually examine that. Because most of us in, the, in just the grunt work of just survival, we don't, we don't see two or three steps beyond our immediate decisions. I mean, if we're talking about the brain, our brain doesn't even have the ability if we're in our lower brain and we're in trauma response, we're in all that kind of stuff. We're thinking, how do I make it through the next few minutes? Not, I wonder what it's like for my kid at school. I wonder what it's like for my spouse with her friends. I wonder why my wife doesn't have any friends anymore. There's, there's lots of those kinds of things that are not terribly obvious until you get away from the environment and get away from some of those kinds of things. And we sit down and ask the big, you know, the questions about what, what happened to your spirituality over the last 10 years? What happened to your physical health? And we can point to that stuff and the more tangible physical things we can point to and make sense of quite a bit faster. But when we talk about communication and boundaries and some of these deeper uh, topics, uh, those are things that people are not only kind of new to, but it's, it's something in general that we don't think about. In, in, in our culture much. We don't talk about, about, about those kind of systems. So I, I think as we, as we move forward, we have to start broadening that conversation and talk about some real health shifts in, in lots of different areas. So really, you know, to, to kind of echo that and, and frame it out a little bit different and, and maybe tee up our, our direction here. So you're talking about the day-to-day -day living of really 
that lower brain you're talking about, which is that survival mode mm-hmm. of this is, I, I'm just trying to make it through the day, maybe even the hour, if, if possible, maybe how am I going to make it through the next few minutes versus the prefrontal portion, which is that, you know, hopes and dreams. And am I being a good father or mother or am I being a good husband or wife? You know, am I good being a good employee? These long-term uh, uh, impactful thoughts of, uh, and maybe dreams of where I want to go. Those, those don't resonate. Those don't hit when we're in this place. Well, I think when you're thinking really short term in that survival mode, you can't imagine why someone wouldn't forgive you. Right. You can't imagine why it would take some time and energy and patience and resilience while your kids try to figure you out again. It's just, it's just not on your radar. And so, um, yeah, it's it's tough. As we go back to this expectations versus reality, I think there are moments for clients that are in the program as well as family members where they're thinking, okay, this is a reset button. I got to get away for a little bit, and then we'll go back home, and we'll I'll just be healthy, and then they'll just be cool, <laughs> and then maybe when I walk in the door, there is this triumphant hero return, and they applause when I don't drink. <laughs> or when I don't yell, or when I don't whatever, or if I, you know, go to the baseball game or do whatever it might be, they're going to be pretty stoked, and they should probably talk about it loudly, about what a kick-ass person I've become. <laughs> it's not quite like that. It's not quite like that. Realistically, though, that's that's what people think. That's the oh, tough yeah. part. But also the family thinks that they're just going to be different when they come home. Right. Right? They don't they're, – they're – not necessarily seeing the steps that have, because like it's a bubble, right? Mm-hmm. Tre- treatment in general is a bubble and, um, you know, 60, 70 hours a week are focused on themselves or their, mm-hmm. you know, progress or whatever it is. They don't realize that when their loved one is going to come home, there's going to be some acclimation that takes place, right? Mm-hmm. That's why there's some recommendations that are made when somebody leaves. And to, to hit on a couple of those, um, I'll, I'll, I'll jump onto the early part of the process, not just the walking out the door process. I think what's interesting is, you know, we, we've got a, a process where we ask family to say, what's it really been like for you at home? And it is, it is probably one of the bigger challenges as a clinician to get family members at home to actually say the truth. It's a, it's a fascinating thing because they, they have... And this is, again, kind of the human condition, but it's extra true for families that have been through all sorts of uh, drama and trauma. Everyone's pretty hesitant about saying what the problem is or, or the consequences or the secondary consequences of those kinds of problems. And so it's funny. There'll be moments of, hey, Austin, when this person gets there, will you make sure they stop doing this and stop doing that? Or have been, I'm really pissed off by this and this, and this really sucks, and I don't trust them, and this is why I'm thinking about a divorce, and and those kinds of things. And our answer is, like, that's a great point. You should definitely talk to your loved one about that. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, yeah, I'm kind of busy, and I got shit to do, and that's Mm -hmm. really uncomfortable. That's why I sent them to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, And so that's that's a real barrier that families often don't understand, is that you're going to have to be honest, too, and and say say the thing. Whatever the thing is, you have to say it. But there is this fantasy that we have, and this is true for all of us in different ways, that we really want to avoid confrontation. We want to avoid tension. We want to avoid honesty 
but we still feel very entitled to the results. And that's where I would say, yeah, you got to grow up. That's the hard answer. You, you should not, you, you cannot enjoy that level of entitlement by being that dishonest. And again, our, our intent is not to be dishonest, but when we people please forever and just say that we're fine and we placate and we go through the motions of it and we want someone to magically read our minds because we love them or they love us, like that is just not based in any kind of reality. Well, I think when you start down some of those roads, I don't think it actually starts out as being intentionally dishonest. But right, I think, exactly. when, you know, when you kick that can so far down the road and you look up, you're like, holy cow. Yeah. I haven't mm-hmm. said what I actually meant in a long time. In a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the confrontation piece is, you know, the, the, you know, the opposing is lack of confrontation. I have not made a point to bring any of this up on purpose for a long time. Oh yeah. Not because they were intentionally, it was, you know, theoretically a distorted love or some type of care. Sure. But, but I'll, I'll poke. and now have not confronted this issue forever. And now what? Right. Uh, I'm going to be sarcastic for a second, but but Jesus told me to not be mean. That's right. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to be patient and love, and then just just passive aggressively tear them to shreds. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to be mean by being honest. What comes to mind for me, and what I've I've heard a lot of, is these confrontations. Of, I mean, obviously, there's something deeper going on there, but the sure. confrontation comes out of like you left your jeans on the floor. Right. You piece of shit. The non-issue. The non-issue. But right. there, there is still confrontation, right? Like, I want to make sure, like, <laughs> yeah. everybody is still having these daily arguments, weekly right. arguments, or whatever it is. But it's about something that is so different than what the actual issue is. Right. Yes. Right. That's what we see every single day. Like, I just can't stand being around him anymore because the way he breathes... <laughs> Makes me want to choke. This gum chewing son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna open a can of whoop ass around alcohol, which is relevant. Yeah, which is. But the other conversation, two or three layers deep, than that is, I don't know if I'm lovable. I don't know if you love me anymore. I don't. I don't know if this is working, and I don't know if we have a future together. Like, there's some terrifying things that are really on people's minds. But when you when you when you bring up all this other little stuff, the, the shiny objects. Um, yeah, that ends up being the discussion. So anyway, it's kind of a tangent a little bit, but I, I think that's early in the process. If we can get everyone to talk about what's really going on, that offers a huge advantage to a solution. I think when we were talking before we started, uh, we were having a brief conversation there and you, you were talking about symptoms of symptoms, addressing symptoms of symptoms. And this is, this is what we're talking about here, right? So what, what, what we're seeing is not really the problem, even though we're, we're, you know, passive aggressively, we're being shitty towards this person because he's, he or she is doing X. X isn't really what's going on. What's really going on? What, what, what do you see? What's been your experience in that? Well, yeah, great question. Um, the, what's been going on, um, it, it varies, but, but to be honest, um, you know, part of why our, our philosophy talks about mindset is that we're, we need to be talking about some deeper beliefs about us and about people. And that's, that's uh, again, most of us aren't raised uh, or required to kind of get into those conversations very often. So, um, yeah, the, the, what's really going on is there's a huge percentage, right? I mean, 50 60% of first responders have at least some pretty significant childhood trauma 
that, that altered the way they saw themselves in the world. And it's not all bad, but it's just the truth that they don't, their ability to feel safe and connected and, and uh, being able to respond to that kind of stress, um, they've been struggling with that for 20, 30 years before they ever get to us. Um, you know, there's, there's some of those deeper beliefs. Uh, I, I think that ends up being a lot more relevant. We've had lots of clients come to the program thinking, no, 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 quit asking all these family questions. I'm just here because I drink too much or I work too much or they've, 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 they've gone out of balance in some part of their life because they've worked really, really hard to not have these conversations. I had a friend of mine said that would have been, uh, you went from preaching to meddling. Oh, <laughs> right. That's a good You're one. You're overstepping. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I have a question real quick yeah. about that while we're on that topic. I mean, in your view and in in, with the responders that you've worked with, how many of the spouses actually know about this childhood trauma that this person has experienced? How, uh, how often are they speaking on what they've experienced as a child that led them to where they're at? I'd say probably under 20%, but somewhere in that ballpark. I've had lots of spouses that say, I knew something happened, but he never talked about it. I keep on picking on guys, but that's not always the case. Um, I, I think there's a lot there like, yeah, I knew something was going on, but it's kind of been the do not enter territory. And so for for one, I don't expect all family members to have a deep understanding about how how trauma works. But I, I think usually family is is pretty clueless of this is something that is a big deal. Whether it's abuse, whether it's neglect, or whether it's poor role modeling or whatever it might be. Um, but I think it's a pretty good amount of of responders themselves not knowing that that some childhood experience is kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes um and then they get to work and uh, they don't understand how this new work related trauma really is connected to their childhood stuff because it's not obvious because uh, they're not good at thinking about those those things they're not trained that way and again keep in mind there's hardly any kind of academy out there that would even suggest you should consider those kinds of things. Anyway, so as, as we as we talk about it, families are pretty in the dark. Uh, they're, they're trying to solve what they think the problem is, and if your loved one never tells you the problem, you will just run around playing whack-a-mole trying to figure out how do I make this person happy when they're, they're just fundamentally pretty grumpy, pretty standoffish, pretty evasive, and uh, they don't really tell me what's happening. And that's that's a whole different level of, of discouragement there. I think it's important that if you're a listener uh, and Ben actually queued up a, a really good point of most listeners don't know trauma or most family members don't know about trauma. We've had some great podcasts on trauma. Uh, ben has a couple podcasts on here. Uh, Trevor Wilkins had a great podcast on trauma. So we've got so, so if you're a listener hearing this and you're like, oh, shoot, uh, maybe I should get more educated on that. There's some there's some great podcasts on trauma on here. So if we if we look at this and kind of segue again into coming home, let's let's spend some time talking about um, those. You know, how can we help? What, how can we be supportive? How can we really embrace this? What are what are some things we should be doing or what are things some things we should expect from our loved one coming home? So as I've been kind of mentioning indirectly there, uh, part, of, part of our philosophy is how, how do we increase health in each dimension of someone's life? And so we, we ask 
our clients to look at, you know, their mental and emotional health, their physical health, spiritual, family system, relationships, how they show up at work on a day-to-day basis. We're asking them to do kind of a deeper inventory of, of how are you managing you and how do you increase self-care, self-awareness, and even pushing yourself? How do you become more of a badass in each area of your life? Um, that's a little bit different for everybody. And so we, we ask uh, family members to, to learn about these different dimensions of themselves. And so I'd say my, my first fl- plug for families would be um, take a look in the mirror. Not, not just be a supporter, but also put on a student hat for a minute and recognize there's, there's some things about you um, that you need to be managing. And, and that is, sounds a little strange, but that is one of the best ways you can support your loved one is get as healthy as you can be. Not for them, not at them, but, but do it because when you're healthy, you're less in, insecure, you're less reactive, and you're less likely to take their behaviors personally when you're focused on your own self-improvement. So I would say that be, becoming healthier, becoming stronger, getting some of your own support, that's a huge one. So as we have clients kind of do some assignments that, that looks at improving these different dimensions of yourself, at some point we want, um, you know, clients in the program to become a teacher. One of the biggest things we try and advocate for is you need to own this system of yours, right? You need to own your history, own your trauma, own all of that stuff, um, it's not about getting rid of it, which is an old school belief. How do we get rid of all your trauma and get rid of alcohol so it's never around so we get to accept and connect with you? The reality is that we're all flawed, weird people. And the better we get at accepting and, and evolving through that kind of stuff, there's some really good news there. So we do want uh, clients in the program um, or anyone in that case to be a teacher to your family about what really is going on for you. What do you need? What is your definition of, of support? When are you ready for feedback? Um, so family members in a, in a situ- situation of receiving, they don't want to be nosy because it might sound like meddling or micromanaging. But I do think it's important to be really curious and to say, how does this work? And you've talked about these skills. When do they show up at the house? When do we just sit back and let you do your thing and demonstrate for us these new competencies, and when do we get involved and, and, you know, get in the middle of that mix? I think that's a huge piece because what I've seen from a lot of people is that uh, the communication piece on when they've had a tough day and when they do need the space is there once they leave treatment quite a bit more. Like I have a, have a plan, so if I, you know, whether it's a key phrase or word or whatever it is, is like I need 30 minutes alone because today was a tough day. And then the spouse knows that, hey, this okay, something tough happened. I'm much more receptive to giving them space because they're being open and honest with me about what they need instead of them not talking to me. Well, to go off of that for a second, in the past, keep in mind that if they're having a bad day, this this person would still say, hey, I need some space. And there was no plan. There, There was, this is procrastination. This is avoidance. This is a middle finger of I'm fine. Um, so it, it is very different. Um, family members are often very nervous about someone comes home, has a tough day, um, and they have been used to, in most cases, 
having to turn into parent mode and I need to manage my partner. I need to manage this person who has become um, pretty immature, pretty reactive. Um, they're, they're not terribly stable, so I need to stabilize them. So there's lots of that codependence that happens in, in couples and they've been used to that for a while. And so the new system of I'm going to come home, I'm going to have a rough day, give me a little bit of space, the pressure's really on. People need to show up and show up with those skills and really demonstrate some of that kind of stuff. But I think it's really powerful when someone who leaves treatment comes home and says, I have a plan. Let me show you. Let me demonstrate it. And I'll even tell you what your role is in my plan. And then I'll, I'll show you that this is actually, you know, real um, new um, competence. And that's, that's something that is a little unnerving and, and family members oftentimes are a little, well, they get a little panicky about that, which is totally understandable. But they're righteous in that because it's been yeah. deception or lies or, yeah. you know, dishonesty, maybe intentional or unintentional, whatever it may be. Right. At that point, there's a trust violation that's occurred. And I don't believe you when you say things right. about the problem you have. Right. So, so they should be asking like, hey, I need to just show up and actually do it. So the other thing I would add is that, you know, when we make recommendations as a program, we have people that are doing, again, tons, you know, dozens of hours a week of working on me, all that kind of stuff. We're, we're, we ask that all of our clients consider, some can pull it off, uh, some can't, but we want them to do some kind of a step down, which means we want you to be in support meetings. We want you to get some extra help. That does take time. And that's a tough one for families because we're like, hey, we've been waiting for you to get home. And when you got home, you're going where? You're doing this other thing in the evening? You're doing this other thing with another therapist? Like, it feels it feels like, uh, for some families, it feels like a bit of a betrayal of, I have to keep on giving to this new system and you get to be with other folks and we don't get to enjoy these new upgrades. So I, I think that can hurt. And if families don't understand what role that is, that that takes in the maintenance conversation, um, that can be really disheartening. So when someone hears like, hey, you've been gone in the garage drinking or at work or whatever you've been doing for the last while, it hasn't been us. And now you're home and you're going to go spend, you know, you're going to go hang out with some AA meeting. Like, how is that fair? So and, until they get some education, understand what that is, or, or at least maybe even join in and go to some of those kinds of meetings, this might feel like a, a bit of a betrayal or something that's not good news. So I know, so, so I know we're, we're, we're closing out on time. So I, th I, th I think I want to circle back to one of the things you said, which, which really resonated with me. You, you presented some challenges. I'm going to kind of condense it, but you, you presented some challenges there on, on, uh, the family members perception of, of what's happening and, and which is really overwhelming to a family member um, that, 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 man, how do I do this? And I know, I know Chanteau has a family programming side. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's an education piece there to the, to the Chateau family members, which is hard. It's that's, again, that's hard work. I've, I've, you know, I've been through, uh, I don't think I've finished mine, but that's, I've, I've tried to go through it itself just to, it, it's, it's hard. So navigating forward, what are some, what are some things? Let's give some solutions to some of these family members as we kind of uh, start to start to work towards wrapping this up. What are some things or tips, some, some lessons learned, maybe some, some, um, you know, some cues that would 
How do I navigate my loved one coming in? What should I be doing? You're going to get the message early on, hopefully, as as your loved one decides to get some help that, that you need some of your own. So, so finding a, a decent therapist that, that hopefully is culturally competent with what your situation is about, I think that's pretty critical. Um, there are some support groups out there. Um, if, if substances or alcohol specifically is, is part of that mixture of challenges, uh, Al-Anon is out there. It's free. Um, there's a number of online resources, um, smart recovery. There's, there's a number of other kinds of support groups that are saying, Hey, come and at least chat with us, find, find a community. Um, now and then I hear about departments that actually have some, some, some activity when it comes to family spouses. Uh, there's, I don't want to say clubs, but there's some, there's some smaller organized groups that, that offer a place for you to go and someone can say, hey, I understand where you're at. I recognize this story. We've been there. I think that offers a huge piece of relief for someone who has been kind of drowning uh, in, in challenges. Um, the other piece of it, I'd say, was, um, yeah, obviously we, we put together a family curriculum to help get out of some of that stigma and get out of some of the isolation that families feel. But there is something to be said about learning. There's, there's podcasts, there's books, given YouTube University and the way that works, there's, there's some real assets out there that at least helps you understand that you are not alone and that there's, there's things you can be doing about it. Um, but I think it really, uh, your ability to kind of get support, ask for your own help, and to be able to shift your mindset into this new phase of your life, uh, regardless of the behaviors of your loved one. You getting healthy and you connecting with those kinds of resources matters quite a bit. I think there's also a piece to add on is like the stuff that we forget. Go on, go on date night. Go, go do things together. Like right. plan on spending time right. and relearning each other right. again. Right. There's, there's a huge piece to be said about that. Huge piece. Couples therapy, whatever. Right. Yeah, Great know. point. I, I think. One of the, the things that is often overlooked, and I, I do this in my couples counseling, is um, the power of saying thanks. People are going to come home, and uh, I've seen some spouses where they have a loved one come home, and they're finally behaving the way that they wish they would have for a long time. And there are moments where if you haven't done some of that work on yourself, unfortunately, some of those conversations look like, it took you long enough. Now you're doing it and just, just bitter and just really unhappy. And it's really sad to see that someone's showing up doing the thing. And because you're not in a spot, it ends up being, again, unfortunately a bit of a punishment. And then they go back to being like, okay, I guess. I but again, that's it. navigating their own pain, hurt, yeah. and you know, these, these negative impactful feelings, right. maybe their survival mode still of fear. It, it happens all the time. And, and people think, well, I went to my therapist and talked about it for a few minutes, so I should be over it. I'm like, it might take a, it's likely going to take a lot longer. But I do think those little compliments of that was awesome. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for connecting. Tell me more about that. Um, I think there's some real skills around validating each other. And this is absolutely true for, for clients we have in the program is how do you acknowledge and be supportive and more positive and saying, hey, You've been carrying the load for a long time. You put up with my shit for quite a while. Thanks. I, I think one of the things that really helps is when 
clients get back home, uh, I'm, I'm advocating all the time of like, great, get your spouse out of the house for a week. <laughs> it's their break. Like help facilitate that, get, get them some relief. I think from a, I think, I think, you know, one of the, again, from that viewpoint, maybe trying to put on the lens of that loved one of maybe a contentious question for you is you're telling me I have to do something on this when he's been, or she's been the problem the whole time. That's what you're telling me. Well, yeah, it depends how far into their own education they've, they've gotten. But no, I, I think the, uh, yeah. All, it's funny that all the skills we want to facilitate in the program or in treatment, they work on both sides. So our clients will get kind of a reality letter, hopefully. And um, the same can be said about the other side of the relationship. They might need some real solid feedback. They might need some upgrades and some skills. They might need that kind of stuff. So whatever it is we're kind of hoping our loved ones do to get healthier, the question is always going to be, am I doing those things today? Am I doing those things as well? Am I, am I receptive? Am I honest? Am I accountable? Am I being all those different things? And so if it is good medicine, it's universal and it works for all of us. And I think that's something that we, we kind of forget about. But uh, yeah, having loved ones come home and offering that kind of patience and support. And a lot of times it might be more accountability. Um, I think the expectation of this is going to be a marathon. It's going to take a while. Um, there's a lot, I mean, change is basically time and repetition. And so how do we have, you know, a loved one experience dozens, if not hundreds of good, new, positive, healthy experiences. And then we start to see that the trust build and evolve a little bit. But yeah, that just takes some time. Being realistic about that is probably one of the biggest ones. Ben, it's been uh, awesome. Once again, it's always great having you on, uh, getting your uh, wisdom and your viewpoint here. It's, uh, it's always amazing. I think Austin, to our listeners, we ought to put out a plug there if because uh, we've teed up some pretty pretty difficult concepts here. Uh, if there's any of our listeners out there that are maybe they don't know where to turn, they should just reach out to us. Uh, we, we've got, you know, some great contacts across the nation that uh, can help some folks out. If if the maybe we're talking to you, this really resonates with you, then uh, give us a shout. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a ton of resources. There's a ton of Across the country, right? And mm-hmm. and you don't know until you ask. So if you find yourself in the place where you you know you don't know those podcasts that Ben was talking about, or you don't know those resources, you don't know those connections, um, we're we're a connection for you. So we're we're happy to help. So with that, Ben, thanks, Austin. Until next time. Thanks for having me. Chateau Health and Wellness is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's first responder resiliency program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Health and Wellness is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, 
Go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031.